1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God willing, we will seek to finish this epistle. Maybe might not get done before the end of the year, but the Lord knows. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to finish it next week. And then we're into the Sunday before Christmas. But we'll see how the Lord leads we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we've come to as far as, well, we've dealt with verse 11, so we're coming to verse 12. We'll take time to read the remainder of this epistle from chapter 5, verse 12, and let us hear the word of the Lord. May it come with profit to your souls. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And amen indeed. Let's still our hearts momentarily for prayer. Our God, we are thankful for that which has already encouraged our hearts this morning. Thankful for how the truths in what has been sung come to our hearts to lift us up and direct our minds away from problems and discouragements to consider Christ, to consider great truths that lift us up and help us. We pray today for those particularly on our minds that may need such lifting up. We think of the Reverend Owen and his wife. We pray, God, that thou wilt draw near to them. We pray today, I'm not sure if he's handling the word or not, but if he's still ministering, I pray that his own heart would be greatly encouraged today. I pray that those truths that he has preached for years will gird his own heart with strength and that he and his wife will be a tremendous encouragement to that congregation there And to all that see him and meet him and know him, 
this time of testing would be a time of witness to many without Christ for how the Lord's people can rest even in such times as these. Bless us here today, we pray. Draw near to us. Give the help of thy Spirit. Take us away from just some thoughts and a sermon. We pray for a word from God. We pray the Holy Spirit will apply the word with power. Come and help us then, Lord, in this endeavor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the final section of this epistle, the Apostle Paul begins to urge believers to practice and to progress in various areas of the Christian life as it is expressed in the local congregation. As you have read down through this text with us this morning, no doubt you have noted it, that he covers a lot of ground, giving various exhortations. Some of them he doesn't develop, he doesn't deal with. He tells us just to you know, pray without ceasing, rejoice evermore. He doesn't give any more detail there. And I imagine that the idea behind that is that he has already dealt with this. That when he was in that city, he dealt with these themes. And really what he's doing here, at least in part, for some of these exhortations is he's just reminding them. He's saying once again what he had told them before, repeating it in order to draw their minds to the main things that help within the life of the church. Some of these matters need to be repeated, and we will get to them in due course. But there's a word that keeps appearing in this final section that we should not miss. It is the word brethren. You see that in verse 12, and we beseech you brethren. The same word appears in verse 14, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27. He's using this term in a concentrated fashion over and over again because he is speaking to a family. He has the family in mind, the church family, the family of God, those that are the redeemed of the Lord, those united together because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a people that were facing tremendous battles and that they needed to understand that the best way to face these battles is together that there's a way of living together in a collective fashion that will help them rejoice and have something of the victory of the gospel in their experience, even in the midst of the persecution and trials that they were facing in the first century. There's a tremendous strength in unity, beloved. It is hard to quantify the strength that there is in unity. And in various realms of the world, it is recognized, even outside of the church, You want to have unity in your place of business. You will strive to maintain it. You want to have business within sports, within a team. I have followed one or two sports teams over the years, and I have, particularly when I was younger, always was following Manchester United, and through the time that I was most interested in that team, they had one manager, or as you call him, a coach here, uh, throughout over 25 years of that time, and perhaps the greatest uh, soccer coach that has ever lived. And over the years, you learn something about how he maintained unity and how much he fought for unity in what we would term the dressing room uh, in order to keep the morale and the spirit and a winning, winning mentality within the team. The same applies even to the military. There cannot be any room for division, for any turning aside and rebelling or a maverick spirit within that. It all will harm the common goal. And we know it within our own families, within our own homes. 
If there's strife in the home, regardless of who is involved, it unsettles the entire atmosphere. No one's at ease, whether it's siblings striving with one another, or parents, or parents and children, whatever the case might be. We understand that it unsettles the atmosphere. There is a strength in unity. And because there is a strength in unity, it is always under attack, especially in the body of Christ. Satan moves to disturb the peace of the church because if he can disturb the peace, the unity is threatened. And if unity is threatened, it will take with it the strength of the church. And you may have seen this. You may have observed this. A church once vibrant, optimistic, strong, going forward, and something comes in, it unsettles the peace, it fragments the sense of unity, and the strength begins to dissipate from the witness of that congregation. It's all too often experienced. So as Paul begins this series of exhortations to the church, he deals with the matter of peace in the opening verses of exhortation. Peace is very fragile, very. And you will know it again from personal experience. Even as you walk with the Lord, how quickly peace can dissipate from your own soul. One day you're on the mountaintop, you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're trusting in His grace, you're resting in His strength, you feel unmovable, and then something happens. You're upset, you're discouraged, perhaps even angry. You react like God has vacated the throne. And this is a common experience among the people of God. And then you catch yourself, like I said uh, recently about Mrs. Cromley, and how, Miss Cromley rather, and how she was catching herself being discouraged and why am, I, why am I discouraged? Why am I not just resting in the Lord in the midst of this particular trial? We are called to maintain peace within the body of Christ. Various passages deal with this. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul exhorts there, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Following after the things which make for peace. It's so important. Second Corinthians 13 verse 11, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And so even as we strive toward peace, as we work towards peace, as we seek to maintain peace, then we will experience and sense the God of peace coming alongside and helping us in that endeavor, because it honors Him. It honors him. He, it honors him to reflect the peace that the gospel brings, the reconciliation known through Christ. These things are to be reflected by the body of Christ. And so Paul is striving to encourage that within this particular congregation. What I want us to consider then this morning is a gospel church is a church at peace. A gospel church is a church at peace. And I, I titled it that way and I, I thought, you know, if if Dr. Paisley was around, he would talk about certain pieces that you don't want to have because I remember him saying once about people boasting of the peace of their congregation and you're always fighting in a war. And he said, you have, your peace is the peace of the dead. It's the peace of a cemetery. And that's why there's peace there. There's no life there. And in a sense, that's true. In a place that never has peace threatened, it is because there's no life there. 
in a place that consistently experiences peace and there's nothing that threatens to upset it is because there is no life there. There's, there's, Satan sees no threat in that body. But in the body where there is life, where the gospel is central, in the home where Christ is endeavoring to be honored, where the, the, those there are trying to exalt the Lord and live for His glory, there will be the constant threat by the enemy to upset that peace. It's a little like, again, our own souls. The fact that you are struggling and fighting with sin and battling with sin and wrestling with sin is an evidence of life. It may be discouraging to you to feel that battle and feel like you're failing and you're losing and so on. Yet, yet the fact that that battle exists is an encouragement because it signals that there is life. And so it is within the body of Christ. We don't want unrest and we want to maintain peace, but whenever it is being attacked, it is because it is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. So, a gospel church is a church at peace. First of all, let us consider peace as it relates to the oversight in the church. Peace as it relates to the oversight in the church. We come to verse 12. Paul, you can see his exhortation there in the word beseech, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Is he meaning that they are some form of dictators over them? No, not at all. They are not to dictate, but to direct. They are not to drive they are to lead. And that really is the sense of the language there, that they are leading you in the Lord. And the Lord has appointed certain individuals for that purpose. Now, we touched on this already way back at the beginning of our study in this epistle in chapter 1 and verse 6, where the apostle said there, if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 6, ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. He became followers of us and of the Lord. And we emphasize the fact that, that those individuals there that had been brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they had recognized the spiritual oversight of the apostle and those that were with him and sought to replicate their life, learn from them, respect their position, and to follow them. In fact, when you read on and you deal with the context dealing with knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, verse 4, and how it all centers around that, they were proving their election by their following of the apostle and the party that was with him. They were giving evidence of the fact that they truly were born of the Spirit because of their adherence to apostolic instruction and example. Now, the Lord uses superiors, and we touched again and made mention of the fifth commandment way back when we dealt with that. And when our larger catechism deals with this aspect of the fifth commandment, it talks about superiors, inferiors, and equals. And when it, when it uses the term superiors, it's not talking like they're people of more value. The idea of superiors relates to the fact that they are more experienced, they are of greater age, or of greater gift. 
And the idea is not to say that they're more valuable in that sense, that they matter more than others, but they just have something that lifts them above in terms they could be older or more experienced or have gift. And we are to recognize such that they are at times when they're assigned to certain places within the body of Christ, when they're elders and teachers within the body of Christ, they are over you in the Lord. They are leading you in the Lord. And this is understood. I don't want to get into the whole aspect of church government here, but it has been encouraging to see what appears to me a revival in getting to understanding church government a little more. Many of our Baptist brethren are discovering uh, a plurality of elders as a form of leadership in the church and moving away from this kind of more popish leadership where you have one man at the helm and he calls the shots and he's leading the way and then the buck stops with him and they're moving away from that. And I'm glad for that. I'm very thankful to see that because it is not about one person. There's meant to be a plurality that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. These individuals are appointed by the Lord. They're delegated by Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul speaks to the elders at Ephesus, he says to them in Acts 20, 28, that the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The Holy Ghost. And the appointment of those that are over or leading those in the body of Christ they are those that are led by the Spirit, that the Spirit has been involved in that appointment process. Turn with me for a minute to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As Paul is dealing with the oversight, it is in the context of peace. And you can see how it comes out in Ephesians chapter 4 as well. I'll read the opening three verses just to see what he's beginning to deal with. Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that's the driving thrust of what he is aiming to, to teach them, that there's to be a desire for unity and peace, verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, he addresses the doctrine that establishes unity and peace. And you can see the Trinity coming out in those few verses. And then in verses 17 through 32, to the end of the chapter, he addresses that, that which dangers, it puts in danger the unity and peace of the church. So from verse 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Again, you see verse 1, you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Verse 17, don't walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And he goes down to deal, goes on to deal with those matters that threaten peace, that threaten that which he is pushing them to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These things threaten. And in the middle, and what I'm showing you is the relationship between the beginning of the chapter and as you progress through the chapter, when you come to the heart of it, you have those individuals that are helpers in the church and part of their responsibility is to maintain peace. 
And so, in verses uh, 7 through 16, it is, where Paul directs his mind to the ascended Christ, who has given gifts unto men, verse 8, and he has ascended, and what has he done? He has, he has given, verse 11, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And verses 12 through 16, he shows their, what they're working toward, to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. And it is pulling together the body. This is the point. It's pulling the body together. So you could say, really, Ephesians 4 is about peace within the church, the striving for peace and unity, and the doctrine that makes it possible and makes it necessary, and the various matters that put it in danger, and then those individuals that the Lord has appointed to help sustain that unity and peace by their teaching and instruction and example. Now, this is what is brought out, brought out therefore, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There's helpers to the peace. That's the point. That Christ has given helpers to maintain peace within the body of Christ. And so we read verse 12. Think of that context. Read verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. He is endeavoring to apply the necessity of peace within the body of Christ and how elders relate to that aim. A couple of things to note here. First, these helpers of peace have responsibility. They have responsibility. We're told in verse 12 that they are them that labor among you. They labor their ministry is work. It is toil. In the case of the pastor, it is constant study. It is preparing and delivering sermons, Bible studies, counseling, discipling, instructing, baptizing, marrying, burying, and so on and so forth. This is the heart of the work, constantly endeavoring to, again, prepare people for the work of the ministry and pulling them together, maintaining harmony within the body of Christ, and getting everyone driving in the same direction, that direction which honors the Lord. The elders that oversee, along with the teaching elder, often they have their employment, but they still have their responsibilities within the body of Christ, and they labor. And these individuals, those that labor among you, they are never perfect. Never. They are never perfect. They're always collectively learning and growing, just as each man is individually. If anyone has aspirations for a perfect leadership in the church, you're not going to find it. It's not there. And what is sad is that as we think about leadership in the church, often people will avoid it. They don't want to be leaders. They will never consider themselves an option when it comes to this aspect of the work of God. They want to avoid it at all costs. It's much easier to be an armchair critic than it is to actually be involved in the work. And even if you're not a critic, it it, it takes work and labor and people want to avoid such responsibility and scrutiny. And yet, beloved, it is a necessary part. Anyone who cares for the body of Christ will live in such a way to make themselves an option when it comes to leadership in the church. The requirements for being an elder are 
for the most part, fairly straightforward, the requirements that every Christian should aspire to. They're not high and lofty ideals that are only a select few ever reach. They're, for the most part, fairly basic. And if you have any desire to live the Christian life to the glory of God, you, for the most part, will meet those requirements. And then it is a good thing to desire the office of an elder. As we have it translated in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Often he doesn't feel himself necessarily equipped for the work, but he sees the need for it. He understands how it is required. And he looks at the body of Christ and he he makes himself available to help that body in which he finds himself. Now, every body is different. And I talk about every local church body is different. And I I remember learning that and seeing that for the first time, really, when when we moved to Canada. And we had been members of a an established congregation in Northern Ireland that had been going for a long time. And you looked at the elders and you had in your mind, you kind of like, this is what elders look like in the church. And you had this kind of view of them. And when I went to Calgary and you start thinking about, well, we need to be working toward oversight in the church and leadership in the church. And I realized <laughs> there's no one here, at least there are very few, if anyone here that is like, the vast majority of the men that were elders in the church that we came from. And I remember wrestling with that. I mean, are the ideals, what I have learned, what I have seen and witnessed in the church that I was a member of, are those the lofty ideals and you can only encourage men to step into office when they reach that level? I mean, some of these men could teach the Word of God better than some ministers. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating are using hyperbole there. I mean, men who really know the word, studies that are vaster than many ministers, and very mature, very developed, very knowledgeable. And then you come to this little congregation, and there's no one there like that, at least for the most part. And you think, what what are you to do? Well, you realize that actually the standards and the requirements in the Word of God aren't for these lofty ideas. Sure, certainly. There are mighty men that sometimes come to the fore, and as, as, a, as a community develops and grows and gets established, you're, you're going to have more developed and mature men maybe come to the fore. But you have to really, what has God provided? What, what men are here? Because when you read the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul putting this emphasis upon ordaining elders, that there must be oversight. In fact, when he writes to Titus, I've maybe pointed this out on other occasions, when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, he actually rebukes Titus because he's writing to him, telling him to do what he told him to do in the first place, the reason why he was in Crete in the, there in the beginning. He sent him to Crete, why? To ordain elders. And now he's writing an epistle telling Titus, for this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest ordain elders. And he's basically saying, Titus, why haven't you done it yet? Why haven't you done it? You need to get elders in the church, lead the congregation, so that there is oversight in the body. And when you read through the book of Acts, you see again the same emphasis, Paul striving, there must be leadership in the church. 
and we may look at it, analyze it, examine it, and ask, why is it that necessary? Is it that important? But at the very least, without studying it, the pattern of the New Testament puts such an emphasis upon it that even if we don't understand all the whys and wherefores, we must be striving to maintain a plurality of oversight in the body of Christ. They may not all be perfect, they may not all be equal. And a church that has been going for 60 years or more versus a congregation that's basically just starting to assemble together and has no oversight is going to look very different. But you work with what you have. No leadership is perfect, but the Lord has appointed them. They're those that labor among you. They are to apply themselves in the various aspects of ministry, practical and spiritual, leading in the congregation. And they are to admonish you, he says in verse 12, admonish you. Elders are called to instruct. Often when we're preaching, we are admonishing because we're bringing matters to your attention, cautioning you in the wrong path or away from the wrong path, and encouraging you in the right path. Sometimes this admonishment is one-to-one. You have to speak to an individual in that context. And again, when you do so, admonishing is, is not an easy task. You don't always get it right. You try to consider what has happened or what is going on and who am I dealing with and consider their frame and their personality. And really the goal, the goal is to lead them to where they need to be. And sometimes that context may require a very stern approach. But really what I try to understand is what is the gentlest way I can lead this person to where they need to be? And if sometimes that requires strong language and firm approach, then so be it. But you're trying to lead them in the gentlest possible way into the right path before it becomes a matter of discipline or worse. We are to be cautious when we admonish, but not cowardly. And it takes courage at times to address individuals, to speak to them in the way that perhaps they don't want to hear. But this is the work. This is the work of the ministry. So these helpers of peace have responsibility. They labor among you and they admonish you. If you can take those two aspects of labor or, or of their responsibility, they labor among you and admonish you. This is what they are to do. These helpers of peace, they're endeavoring to maintain peace within the body, and they do this by their labor and by their admonishment ministry. But also these helpers of peace are to be recognized. Not just do they have responsibility, but they are to be recognized. Verse 12, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. To know them. Interesting. To know them. Paul uses a word here, Actually, that means to see, not to know. If know was the real sense of it, he would have used another word. But the word here, while it's translated know, really is translated more literally as to see. But the translators have used the word know because they're trying to draw out the true significance of the word. In other places where this is true. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Because there's a little portion here that really brings out, it might help us to understand the significance of knowing those that are laboring among you. John chapter 20, we come to the resurrection morning, 
And you have Simon, Peter, and John that run to the sepulcher. And if you look at verses, if we read from verse 4, so they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, speaking of John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now you note the words there. First you have verse 5, where John saw the linen clothes lying. That's just to, to see something, like you saw something passing. You maybe don't take a whole lot of notice, but you saw it. It registered. You saw something. Then with Peter, you have a completely different word used. When he goes in and he seeth the linen clothes lie and so on and so forth. And the word there is it has giving an indication that Peter took a real look around and tried to see all that was going on. And so it's, it has that significance of, of really trying to take in all that was going on and looking more carefully to the environment. But then, in verse 8, you have John again, and it says, He saw and believed. And that word, and you can see it even by the context, means a deeper perception. John is grasping something that is more than just seeing something with the eye. And it leads to his belief. And there seems to be here, not for Peter, if you read the Gospel of Luke, but for John, John believes. He doesn't express it, he doesn't publish it, but there's a sense in which his heart begins to rest and grapple and understand what has taken place because he perceives something. And when you read through the Gospel of John, often you will see John being very spiritually perceptive, and this is one of those occasions. He sees, and it's not just with a physical eye, it's something that he truly recognizes with significance. And that is the word that is used in our passage here this morning, where we are told that to know them which labor among you, it is to see them truly recognizing them. It's not just that you know who they are, but there's a real recognition of who they are. You see that the Holy Spirit has appointed them to this office. You see that, you agree with that, you're thankful for that, you see them as leaders, people you can go to, uh, inquire with and pray with and pray for you, all of these things. It, it, it brings in the idea of truly recognizing them. And this is an important aspect in the church. If people ignore the spiritual oversight that God has given, it's not going to help maintaining peace in the body. If people act like they don't have that office, if they act like they're just, oh, they're elders, but that doesn't mean anything, it's going to lead to disharmony. You'll have people who, who look at them, so they may be an elder, but I know better, and they, they make decisions themselves, or they try to direct people in a certain way, and they assume a place of authority and responsibility because they don't see those that God has appointed within the body, and it leads to problems. And this is what Paul is exhorting. You need to 
know them. That's how it's translated because it's getting a hold of it and recognizing those people. It's not just some convenience factor for the body of Christ. The Holy Ghost has made them overseers. And Christians, therefore, should see it, not just, oh, there they are, overseers, but truly understand them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Thirdly, these helpers of peace are to be respected. They are to be respected, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Again, they're never perfect men. There's, that's not what it's saying here, that if they're perfect, then you esteem them highly. Certainly, they have responsibilities, and they're to approach what God requires them to be and to do. But they are men, imperfect men though they may be, that are endeavoring to do a work that Christ has appointed them to do, that the Holy Spirit has appointed them to do, and to do a work often that many are unwilling to do. And you're to esteem them very highly in love. Esteem them very highly in love. Your thoughts are to be uh, conditioned by the love of the gospel. Your, your, Your consideration of them is to be one of esteem. Esteem very highly. Why? Because of their work. What work is it? Watching over, taking care. You might not need them very much at present. You might not have circumstances that really require a whole lot of interaction or intervention or whatever. Chances are at some point you're going to need them. Maybe not directly in your own life, but maybe in the life of your children, your spouse, or some other member of your family, or someone else that you know. And they will be there. They will be there. Their work is to be there when they are needed. And to come alongside and give that help and support that maintains peace within the body of Christ. And I have to say, I, whether it's seen as right or wrong, <laughs> uh, but I've been here now almost a year. We arrived the 10th of December, and it's almost a year since we've been here, and we've been working with the elders of this congregation, and I can say that every one of them ought to be esteemed very highly in love for their work's sake. I'm very thankful for every last one of them. I'm thankful for what I have learned from them, and I have the highest respect for each and every one of them, and I believe they deserve the response that this text requires. And anyone who differs on that opinion, I'd like to have a conversation with you. I'd like to know why. Why it is you feel that this text should not be adhered to, that it's somehow something you can just ignore. I hope it's not the case. I hope every last person here has that spirit that this text looks for in those that God has appointed in this body. But as is the case in the work of God, you sometimes go through very difficult trials and difficulties, and certainly it's been, it's been a trying year in many ways in this, in this body for the elders, many matters that have arisen and had to be dealt with and worked through. And at every turn, I'm very thankful that 
when I came to this text, I could thank the Lord that the men that I work with, I can esteem very highly in love for the work's sake. And then he drives the point home, the exhortation, be at peace among yourselves. The and there not being reflected in the original text. Be at peace among yourselves. Driving the point home. Be at peace among yourselves. This, that's what they're there to help with. That's what they're there to maintain. Don't be fighting it. Don't be going against it. And what is encouraging when you read this is to realize that the first century church had problems here as well. They were not perfect. We don't look back to the first century church. Certainly there was tremendous blessing and growth within the church. But at the same time, they had tremendous trials and difficulties that are reflected in the present age as well. People that would not work toward peace within the body of Christ refuse the oversight of the church and the leadership of the congregation and work to strive to, to make disharmony within the body of Christ. Well, Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Don't be fighting. Don't be contentious. Secondly then, not only peace as it relates to the oversight of the church, but peace as it relates to others in the church. Paul then goes on to show that each member of the body has a responsibility towards others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, Paul writes there that there should be no schism in the body. There should be no schism in the body. But that the members should have the same care one for another. They should have the same care one for another. That instead of bringing division and threatening the peace, they should have care one for another. And that's reflected in the passage we're looking at. Now, as it relates to others in the church, first, some will need to be warned to maintain peace. Some will need to be warned. Verse 14, And we exhort you, brethren, again, See that same language, exhortation, beseeching. We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Warn them that are unruly. Some will need to be warned to maintain peace. Now, with regard to the word unruly, Vine's Dictionary says, it was especially a military term denoting not keeping rank insubordinate, end quote. In other words, the Lord is guiding His church and these individuals are not in line. The general, the captain, whoever it might be, is leading in a certain way, giving instruction, and these individuals are not in line. You have the oversight of the body, as it were, giving instruction, leading the congregation, helping them, and you have those that are unruly. They won't get into line. They're insubordinate. They're showing a lack of willingness to, to be a part of the body, but are causing friction now, when I look at this, it's very easy to, when you read this text, and I must confess, in my own mind, this was where I first went. When I read verse 14, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. My mind immediately went to thinking about those that I have known in the past who have reflected an unruly and subordinate spirit. And thought that that's where my mind went. It's what I thought about. Those occasions come to your mind. You start thinking of anecdotal examples and experiences that you've had that relate to the text that you're reading. But, as I looked at it more carefully, I want you to see what, the, what Paul's really driving at here. is not for the church to look at the unruly and think about them and point out their faults, but actually what he is exhorting here 
is to the body of Christ and their responsibility towards those that are unruly. And the real sin, if you want to use that term, the real sin here is how the body of Christ at times can neglect to be in the warning business. There's always going to be someone that isn't falling into line. There's always going to be those occasions where someone doesn't see it exactly as others see it, as the oversight see it, as the majority of the congregation see it. There's all, that's always going to be there. And Paul's exhortation is not really towards the unruly in so much as it is towards those that are observing the unruly. Those individuals that come into your presence and, and bring contrarian views and perspectives and, and what the text is saying is you're responsible to warn them you're being unruly. This is a duty for the entire body of Christ. I, when I realized that, <laughs> my mind went to a particular occasion where I nearly kicked a Christian out of my home on one occasion. Not because I was trying to be rude, but because they were gossiping and I had given him several warnings. Stop it. Stop it. I don't want to hear it. And he kept on. And I almost threw him out of the house. This is warning when people are being unruly. It's not always easy to do, but it is part of how peace is maintained in the church. If the body of Christ does not take responsibility in those occasions that inevitably will arise, when it's not a collective effort to warn the unruly, what happens is that you create a platform for the unruly, they lead others astray and it causes more schism in the body of Christ. Someone who first hears the word that contradicts or goes against something or is starting to cause disharmony in the church, someone who first hears that can nip it in the bud by a swift word of rebuke and a warning, a loving rebuke. You shouldn't be speaking that way. It is wrong. Scripture, so on and so forth, whatever it is, as you can deal with it scripturally. And you can end it right there before any trouble starts. If you don't, if the collective body doesn't take responsibility, that person goes to one person, to another person. It can multiply as others imbibe the same ideology, the same feelings, and it spreads. And before you know it, the oversight can't do anything with it. The problems already happened and occurred, and there's, there's almost nothing that can be done. And so Paul's exhortation, you can see it, it's not to the elders, it's to brethren. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. This is a collective effort. Everyone should be involved in this kind of ministry. Some will need to be warned to maintain peace. They will need to be warned. Warn them that are unruly. Again, being gracious, careful with it, but the warning still needs to be sounded. Some will need to be comforted to maintain peace. They will need to be comforted. Comfort the feeble-minded. Here you have the despondent and the faint of heart those that feel like giving up. It's the experience that you have when you feel like your soul is a, like a flower without water. And such need to be comforted. They are wilting under the heat of the battle. And they're going through various trials and it is pressing upon them and such need to be comforted, not ignored. In fact, Paul's already done that, has he not? The end of chapter 4, those that were sorrowing, like those that have no hope. He said, look, we don't sorrow like that, verse 13. 
and he gives them encouragement in relation to those that have died before the return of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 18 of chapter 4, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This exhortation is being lived out by Paul as he hears that there are those that are struggling in the body of Christ with a particular doctrinal matter, a practical matter, and he teaches them and instructs them in order to comfort them. Comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort those that are wilting under the heat of the battle. Come with words of encouragement to their soul. Be that. The entire body is to be involved in this. You know someone like, like that? Reach out to them. And some will need to be supported to maintain peace. Verse 14 again, support the weak. Support the weak. I think this isn't spiritual weakness so much as it is physical weakness. Those that need extra help. And again, it can threaten the peace. You think of Acts chapter 6. You think of the widows, the Greek widows that were being overlooked and that threatened the peace of the church. And there had to be the delegation of Uh, the deacons at that point in order to maintain peace within the church and address those where we could consider weak within the body. All of these things maintain peace within the body of Christ. Warning the unruly, comforting the feeble-minded, supporting the weak. And then you have this exhortation at the end, be patient toward all. Again, men in italics, it's just be patient toward all within the church. Everyone in the church requires patience. It's not easy. You're going at times to be dealing with those that will be difficult to deal with, that will oppose your instruction, your help, not want it at all. And so it is absolutely necessary that we exercise patience towards one another. That we don't just flip whenever it's refused or rejected or we're sidelined or ignored. Be patient. Be patient toward all. Oh, what need there is for long-suffering. You see, patience is necessary because the body is never perfect. You wouldn't need patience if everything was perfect. If everything was perfect, there would be perfect harmony You're living perfectly, I'm living perfectly, we're all living perfectly, and we can all therefore appreciate the perfectness of everyone, and there's no need for patience. The problem is, that's not reality. You have your up days, your down days, days where you're discouraged, days where you're angry, upset, just like everyone else. And we can be hurtful, and we can be discouraging and we can speak a word that we ought not to speak or respond in ways that we ought not to respond. And and so Paul drives this point home. Be patient toward all. Be patient. Thirdly then, peace as it relates to everyone in the world. Not just to the oversight and to others in the church, but as it relates to everyone in the world. Verse 15 See that none render evil for evil unto any, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. And he seems to broaden out here the desire to maintain peace beyond the body of Christ. That God's people should be a peaceable people even beyond the church. 
That it's not that we endeavor to maintain peace right here and then be contentious out there, but that that peace that we are to strive and work for within the body, we then try to reflect within the world as well. Not to be upstarts, always causing trouble. And so we are encouraged here, see that none render evil for evil unto any. You will be out there in the world that will treat you in an evil fashion. You will meet people that will not be fair. You will deal with circumstances that will be very unjust. You will be called names. You will be ignored. You will be discarded. You will be overlooked. You may be the best person for the position, but because you're a Christian, you will be ignored for that position. You will experience what it is to to, to feel that kind of hardship and the toxic spirit of the world. And Paul drives home, see that none render evil for evil unto any. Don't give tit for tat. This is not to be found in the body of Christ. This is not the way of the redeemed of the Lord. We have no need to do this. You go to Romans chapter 12. Turn over there very quickly. As Paul brings us out in that portion. From verse 17, Romans 12 verse 17. Very practical here as well. Romans 12 verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. doesn't matter what's going on. Well, he did this, I'm going to do that. That is not, that is not the Christian faith expressed faithfully. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible, as much as life. And you live peaceably with all men. In other words, you are to be the active force in trying to bring peace and sustain peace Sometimes others will not fall into that. They refuse. If there's going to be a lack of peace, let it be on their side, not yours. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. In other words, when we try to render evil for evil, we're getting involved in a work that doesn't belong to us. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is what Paul is saying here as well. See that none render evil for evil unto any, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. It's a soft answer that turns away wrath. And grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15 verse 1. Peace. Peace in the body of Christ. Do we have it here? The right kind of peace? Has it been threatened at times? Certainly. Is it under threat presently? Trust not. 
we might as well forget all of our prayers for blessing if there is that contentious spirit within any of us. It will not be until we are all of one mind, truly sensing that we are on the same side, (laughs) that we are pulling in the same direction, that we want nothing but the honor of Christ. And again, I could turn to so many passages. You think of Philippians. And again, peace, a, a threat there because of division. Individuals arguing among themselves. Not esteeming others highly. Pride entering in. Their own opinions being elevated above the, the whole needs of the church. It threatens. It, the peace is so fragile. And when it's, when it's gone, beloved, it's so hard to get back. It takes such time and labor. It takes such patience. And yet it's so precious because that peace and that sense of harmony is fertile soil for really pulling together to serve Christ and see His blessing poured out. We sang Psalm 133. Where brethren dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing. This is the need in every age, maintaining, fighting for peace, that the work of God may go forward. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we confess this morning that we so often fail. We fail to prioritize that which is most valuable to Thee. We are thankful for He who is the Prince of Peace, who rules over the church. And even in our times of schism, uses it to bring honor and glory to his own name. And yet none of us are to be found guilty of threatening the peace of the church, of refusing to follow after peace. So God, we pray that thou wilt give a unified and concerted will and desire in this body to truly move in the direction of that peace that is conducive to blessing. We pray for peace within our homes. That is so often under threat. Lord, if there be that unrest in homes here this morning, we pray, O God, that Thou wilt superintend the needs of those homes and bring peace. We pray that 
rebellious and unregenerate hearts would be subdued by the gospel. Lord, we ask that Thou wilt give peace to our land. There's a great polarization that we see within the country, and we ask, O God, have mercy. As men rise up against the mind of God and the ways of God, driving a wedge between those that are neighbors, we pray, God, that Thou wilt have mercy. Our hope is the gospel. And we pray that in our witness and our life that we will not render evil for evil. When heated matters arise in politics or religion, philosophy and worldview, keep us truthful, but keep us, O God, from rendering evil for evil. And grant, Lord, that the peace of God will rule in our hearts and reign in our minds and be evident in our speech and in all our ways. Forgive us then our sins and shortcomings, and pour out much of thy Spirit upon us. Bless us as we part from this place. Be with us in our discussions and conversation, even before we leave. Make us an encouragement to one another. Help us, Lord, to return here tonight, expecting the blessing of the Lord upon us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Mm-hmm.